Super interesting to me. I told you it was going to be. Okay. I mean, I, I know you. This is like, you just put me in a no, candy I mean, I, store, John I Stevens. know you. His okay. eyes are going to roll in the back okay. of his okay. head at some point during this thing. This is right in your this, I'm John Stevens. And this is Pod Have Mercy. Russell, Russell. This is Pod Have Mercy. So one of the things we wanted to talk about today, which I find absolutely fascinating, and I think it speaks to a lot of what we've been talking about in different contexts, there... I think it is very applicable into the life of church and denomination, but this yeah. study is about society. Mm-hmm. It's about American society. And it is, it's a Harwood uh, Institute for Public Innovation and the Kettering Foundation uh, put together this huge study. They've actually, uh, the, the, the Harwood group has been researching and interviewing people since 1991. So it's a 30-year experiment. And they had, in in this most recent um, process that they've been going through, they are trying to understand and really, really just get some clarity on the huge polarization that we feel and sense in society. They wanted to study with that 30 years of, of, of experience of interviewing different groups from all around the country and kind of get a sense of where we are. And what they found was fascinating, and it is that the conventional wisdom that we walk into this with is that our country is deeply polarized Mm -hmm. around ideology, which manifests itself in politics and things like that. But they said that is actually a misdiagnosis. That what is misdiagnosed is that 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 polarized. Polarization, that is the issue. And what they say is that rather than being polarized, yeah. Americans are profoundly isolated and disoriented, producing within people a fight or flight response. And that the ideology, the belief systems, right, a far right, far left, or whatever it is, the polarization is really not the, the real issue. Those are symptoms. Symptoms. Yeah. That That's manifest. It. And. Uh, symptoms that manifest in what we face now that started way before yeah. COVID. <laughs> COVID just accelerated, exacerbated. Yeah. What's another really good word? <laughs> Made known. It, yeah, it just revealed. It it, 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 it exposed a exposed. lot. And so what? What the Harwood um, study found, and what they call it, is the civic virus. Hmm. The civic virus. Yeah. Does this have a lot to do with like um, the book that uh, um, Putman came out with 15 years ago called Bowling Alone, right? Where they began to see, uh, he began to see, and and he's a sociologist from uh, Notre Dame, began to see that that folks joining clubs, whether that was PTA or or bowling clubs, was on the decline. Mm. And because of that, more social isolation was happening. And so the, his book, Bowling Alone, was basically the decline of c- civic engagement um, and, and a way of belonging. My mom's actually going to kill me when I say this. She, she listens to everything, and she sends me back. Like last week, remember I talked about like Salisbury steak, yes. frozen dinners? Yeah. She goes, I never made that for you. <laughs> That's right. She bought it for you, though. <laughs> I never made that. <laughs> So, fact so, yeah, oh, I, I get fact, fact checked. So I'm just going to go ahead and say right now, hey, mom, I realize that this is like my experience, what I remember and not the reality. I felt like I, so I had some of my greatest memories were at the bowling alley. My parents were like in a bowling league, the church bowling league. Wow. 
And the kids just got, to, that was back in the days where the kids just got to go run free and the, yeah, yeah. it was a kid's room and there were video games and there were all these sorts of things. You just got to go. It was like, I remember like, there's no one watching me. We're going to do whatever we want to do. And this is where my mom would get mad. Felt like I grew up there. Like that was like, like <laughs> the bowling, the bowling alley. alley raised me. Mar- Marge, <laughs> he's a cigarette hanging out of her mouth. She's going to be kinda so. Aunt Marge. She's going to be so unhappy about this. And I know that's not the truth. I just have good, I had good memories. Taught you poker. My mom and dad, before they were divorced, they they went and there it was friendships. It was bowling alley. It was church league. Man, and it was it was fun. And the kids hung out. And yep. I just remember that being a really cool thing. Some people still do that. Yeah. But I don't know that a lot of people do. Yeah. Anymore. So it's just to highlight your. Yeah. Your story about well, it, it. It. I think it. It. It kind of points to what this article and what you're talking about now is that like the the erosion is an erosion of trust, mm. right? It's uh, so in a civic organization, um, whether that's in bowling leads or PTA or things like that, there's, there's usually uh, a common good that people are after. And that, that engenders and necessitates trust of people that are different. Oh, you're right? going to love this, this, these findings. You're going to be right in your wheelhouse. You're let's, gonna, let's do this. He's like, bro. he's like start, an Enneagram music, seven. He's going to be right having, like somersaulting out of here today. <laughs> when, like, let's come yeah. on. So the civic virus, they say over the last three decades, they've done all this study of Americans in mm-hmm. every area of the country. So in this latest round, there were 16 study groups in all different, whether they're exurbs or suburbs or inner city or large city, there was a group mm-hmm. in Houston, in Lincoln, Nebraska, college towns, South Dakota, you know, Utah. So cross sample from everywhere. Oh, they, they tried to get, and they actually had a research group that um, from Michigan State and School of Journalism that actually broke down the different like typologies of groups in America yeah. so that they would be representative of not, not I mean, it was just, it was everywhere and every type of yeah. person yeah. so that you don't have some like one slanted sort of thing, which we'll get to how people will go. If there's something they don't like in here, they'll still think it's slanted, which is part of the, part <laughs> the of issue. The issue. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, but they call it the civic vi- virus. And it was, they did it along with the American Communities Project. And this is what they said. Here's the State of the Union today. One, people are separating and segregating themselves from one another due to unrelenting fear and anxiety about what's happening around them and to them. Mm. Two, leaders, news media, social media are intentionally stoking polarization for their own self-interest. For for economic gain, let's just be really clear about that. Yes, subjugating people to an alternate reality that confuses, disorients, and destabilizes them Mm -hmm. for their own control power. You could say money too, but but rooted in that control. And three, seeing no way out, people have an instinctive fight or flight response with many breaking into smaller tribes and camps to protect themselves and gain validation while others retreat from engaging at all. Mm. And so the divisions they, they found in this, this, this massive study that the divisions in the country are really intrinsically about social and psychological conditions such as fear, anxiety, a lack of empathy and belonging. Yeah. Your favorite word. That is my favorite word is belonging. <laughs> I think there's something that is going to be revolutionary not, about and this. And not about ideological polarization. Yeah. 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 Now that is... That alone right there, because we're told all the time, it's about the beliefs. You hear the, the right and the left, 
yelling as loud as possible. People feel like that's all that exists is the polarized right, the polarized left, and there's no one in the middle. What we find in this study is there's actually a huge middle. Massive. This is why I think the split of the United Methodist Church and the polarization within politics is all a weapon of mass distraction. It's absolutely a weapon of mass distraction to distract us from the core thing, which is at the heart of Christianity is not a believing system. It's a belonging system, right? Mm -hmm. And that we belong to the one um, who loves us all. And in that space, we have to work out um, our very humanity, our faith, the way Paul says that with fear and trembling. It's a tough road, but we do it together. And if I take my toys and go home because I don't want to talk about certain things or I've made my mind up about who you are, there's a deep sense in which um, um, I'm complicit within the very fracturing of the church that God loves, the world that God loves. Yeah. Bam. And so there's a map in this study, um, you know, and, and again, these, these different typologies, gray in mm. America, African-American South, big cities, Native American lands, military posts, urban oh, wow. suburbs, working class country. So there's a map that shows you where all they are, rural, middle, middle America, college towns, Hispanic centers, all over to, to break this down. And they got help with this, like I said, from this uh, ACP, American Communities Project, which is a huge uh, part yeah. of Michigan State. And so what was interesting, and to go, that's their 30 years worth of background, which I think is interesting. But here's where they came out. I want to look at a few of these key findings at a glance. And through all of these interviews, and you'll hear some snippets from some of the people in each one of these different groups that they did, they would have a two-hour conversation with these groups in, um, in these different areas, guided with the conversation research part. And, and so key finding number one, People say Americans have separated and segregated themselves, focusing on their differences and not what they hold in common. Human connection has frayed. What they found in the conversations, people said over and over and over again in every one of these areas, is that Americans are separating and segregating themselves from one another. People say they don't talk and they don't engage with people who are different from themselves or who have different views. And the result is an inability for people to see and hear each other, learn from each other, bridge divides, and find what they hold in common. Mm. So there's this breakdown of connection. And there's this hopeless feeling that's associated that all these people spoke to, and that the problems have gotten so big and so overwhelming. And where do you go when you're overwhelmed? Right? You, you fight or you flight. It's the natural human response. Some people retreat, some people activate. Well, then what happens is you begin, to, when you fight and flight, you're going to separate yourself from That's other right. people and you're going to lose human connection. And so then the question was asked, how do we pull ourselves out of that? And these people began to just um, talk about that. But that was the first key understanding connected to you is that we've lost our way. We've failed to remember how to compromise and look for workable solutions because we have separated and segregated yeah. ourselves, yeah. focusing on our differences, not focusing on the things we share in common. Super interesting to me. I told you it was going to be. Okay. I mean, I, I know you. This is like, you just put me in a no, candy I mean, I, store, John. I know you. His okay. eyes are going to roll in the back okay. of his okay. head at some point during this thing. This is right here. This watch. may all have to be edited out. Can you just give me a second? Yeah, go ahead. Okay. So check this out. What you have said 
and which makes a lot of sense in the last, like we're dealing with individually, um, with fear and anxiety, deep uncertainty within our own bodies, right? That creates, um, uh, that creates a whole, um, ecological field of stuff that we got to deal with just within mm-hmm. a body called John Stevens or Matt Russell, just us. You put that body within a family that's dealing with those things. You put that within a neighborhood with people that are dealing with country. So when Paul talks about the body of Christ, he's not talking about individuals. He's talking about the collective. So as a, as a body politic, as a, as a, he's getting worked up. I got to move my water as, a, <laughs> as Americans, the body is um, taking on anxiety and fear and uncertainty, and our responses have been um, to do often what um, we're, it's almost as if we need a, um, a sociological therapeutic intervention, hmm. not a split of churches and denominations and factions within because of ideas, but to say you're afraid of something. Right. Mm -hmm. And and what we have to do, I wonder if part of that is in the same thing that we're being called to do as individuals, which is to stop, which is to um, understand um, the feelings that are underneath that, to map those, to become very what psychologists might say, emotionally intelligent. And as a society, we're not acting in emotionally intelligent ways. No. And I, I think a lot of the times, especially the, the, the pond we swim in, is we kind of want to go to the United Methodist Church. And, and this, this is a much bigger study. Sure. This is an American um, communal sure. activity, yeah, but yeah. it fits. Yeah. And it's interesting because... I'm um, just saying the church is... Well, one, is of, one of the college students that, that listens to our thing, it's like he sent a text to his dad, said, tell him I listen to the podcast really good. He goes, the ones on the United Methodist Church, eh. And I'm like, yeah, me too. Tell me about it. He goes, but all the other stuff is really cool. I was like, I'm right there with you, dude. So sometimes we get drawn into that, but really I'm looking at a deeper level. I'm looking at in our own congregation over the past couple of years. I'm Mm -hmm. looking in the community of Houston. I'm looking in, you know, our state. I'm looking in our nation, Uh, but we are segregated. We are focusing more on our differences. And so the first thing they they determined human connection has frayed. And this, this did not just come out of the pandemic. Mm-hmm. This was something that uh, was already underway. Um, and so what they found, for example, this man in Flint, Michigan, there were all these different, oh, this woman from Flint, Michigan, she makes this point and says, I wouldn't say that we're polarized, but I would say that we're segregated. We don't interact with people that are not in our same social economic situation. We don't interact with a lot of people who are not our same race. We think we know them because uh, we're not talking to them. And another guy from Oregon says, we're not connected. I mean, we're separate from one another and we're focusing on all the things that make us so different as opposed to the things that we share in common. We're untethered from our core beliefs and we're untethered from each other. So we're moving in our spaces separate from one another. And so on and on in this particular thing, this was one of the findings that came up and it just, it's just fascinating to me that it starts out with this key finding. Number one is that we have gone to our separate corners (laughs) and come out fighting, you know, get to your corners in a boxing match, you know, when they get all wrapped up, it's like, go to your corners. And, uh, and this is what we've done. And human connection is frayed. I think that is one of the first big, really big lessons um, and how do we pull ourselves out of that there'll be some findings here in this some lessons and some 
proactive things out of the study. Mm-hmm. The second key thing that showed up, a uh, key finding, was that uh, many political leaders and news media are manufacturing polarization to stoke division, to pursue their own self-interest, mm-hmm. with social media helping to create and amplifying these divisions. And this is producing overwhelming surround sound that is engulfing people, pushing them apart, creating deep yeah. anxiety. Yeah. I would say political leaders. It says political leaders, and that was what a lot of it was. I would say leader leaders. Leaders, yeah. Leaders in the church. If you have I've, I've seen this happen in, in the United Methodist Church. Leaders on the far right or the far left. Yep. Same thing. They're stoking division mm-hmm. um, it, for their own purposes, to pursue their own self-interest. Absolutely. And again, their self-interest for their purposes is noble and just. Yeah. That's what they think. Yeah. And I would say when you get into politics and news media and social media, I don't know that even some of them believe, some of them believe they're, <laughs> they're noble and just in their motives. I think some of them know they're not. It's just about maintaining control and power. As a part of the conversation, People railed against the idea that everyday Americans are polarized. This is what's interesting. Across the board in all these 16 different uh, groups that they had conversations, they said, look, Americans are not as polarized as people think. They're sitting in the room talking about differences. Instead, they asserted that we think, this, this whole research group, and this is what I have advocated for a long time, there's way more people in the middle yes. than is widely recognized or accepted. Yeah. And all of these people, folks across the conversation, uh, were saying over and over again that they get a sense of this. And here's what, what when one man in one of the groups said, there's a loud, there are loud extremes. The majority of people are silent in the middle. And I really do believe that most people are in the middle. And the extremes are the loudest on either sides. And a Houston woman said, what I've been seeing the last several years is that, you know, liberals have gone very far in one direction. Conservatives have gone very far in the other direction. Then there's people in the middle saying, well, I'm not that. I'm not that. I'm somewhere in between. Right. 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 And yet all you hear is either or are the are the extreme sides. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. That's the false dichotomy that you're the false. Is it dichotomy or the false choices that you talk about? A right. false dilemma. dilemma. A false dilemma is actually a philosophical term mm-hmm. where you're presented with the thing that says, well, if you believe this, this then you then, must do yeah, this. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and it, that doesn't necessarily hold no. to be true. People no. are more complex than that. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And so one of the, one of the other things they mentioned, one, one person in the study group said a lot of the polarization that you sense that is polarization mm-hmm. is really coming from people who have a lot to gain from it. Yeah. If you want power and you want control, one of the things that you're going to try to do is make people think that they have something to lose if they don't do what you're pushing them to do. Yeah. And they can push people into very strong separate groups. Yeah. You know, it's, it's interesting just thinking about uh, Cambridge Analytics and some of the ways that the platform of kind of the uh, social media platforms have been used across the globe to both kind of um, um, get at people's darkest, deepest desires and wants and then creating whole social movements around that or pushing things in certain ways. You know, it's um, and so I, it's very interesting to me that um, that underneath that is economic gain for for corporations or for stakeholders in places that is actually tearing against our fat, the fabric of our, our very civic life and spiritual life together. Yeah. And I think the leaders, political leaders and denominational leaders are more polarized than the people 
in the pews. Oh, yeah. yeah. And the, what's interesting to me is the political leaders will stand up and, or you know, church leaders or whatever else that are on these different uh, ends of the spectrum, and they'll stand up and they'll claim with absolute certainty, everybody's on my side, and I'm the voice speaking for the people. <laughs> And the other side, like, everybody's on my side. And they, they, they show statistics and all this sort of stuff of how society is changing. So whether it's coming from the more progressive side or the more traditional side, doesn't matter. It's the same with politics from the Republican or a conservative side and the liberal That's or right. progressive Democratic side. I mean, you have these silos they create. What happens is, um, as one person in the study said, now you've got these new silos. Yeah. And so what happens is you begin to just appeal to your base and then you never have to talk with anyone on the other side. You never have to, you never have to expose the other side to your set of facts. And so you began to live in this echo chamber over and over again. This is interesting. So they asked people what they wanted from their leaders mm -hmm. in, these, in the research questions. Their answers were clear and consistent. People want leaders who genuinely listen who are transparent and tell the truth, even if it's something people won't want to hear. Leaders who have a track record that demonstrates genuine intent and follow through, who are open and able to change their minds based on new information and insights, and who will compromise to get things done. In short, people are looking for a relationship, <laughs> one built on give and take and trust, which unfolds and evolves over time. And this is hardly what people say exists today. Mm. But that's what, that's what leadership is. Yeah. You know, and what I've found in our country and in our church is that the people who are leading set these movements are, I mean, that thing I just read, it doesn't really sound like a lot is going on with people who are leading. Um, I wonder though, I mean, if, if, if most leaders are really worried about their own institutions and their own place and security within them, that it's, um, it's not personally advantageous to lead in that deep listening, deeply relational, mind changing way, because we live in such a gotcha society. And so part of that is if you change, you're labeled then as not a complex thinker, you're labeled as uh, as somebody that's uh, a wishy-washy. If you listen to the other Mushy side, yeah. if you listen to the other side, <laughs> it's not about developing relationships of real human connection. Um, it's it's wondering what that other person's up to and the way they're going to try to manipulate you or what's their uh, what's their intention, mm -hmm. right? And so there's that whole we've eroded a deep sense of our own trust with each other in this. One of the things, um, I said we weren't gonna get into like denominational stuff, but See? that's kind of the, the world we live in right now, and this like right on the really? front doorstep. Yeah. But here's, here's what I know, is that there are, mm. these things start, I think, with very good motives. There are people on the left who are more progressive that say, LGBTQ people, you know, this is a justice issue, 
we read the Bibles too. We have a high view of scripture, but we read it differently. And, and, and they're passionate about that. And that's, yeah. that's the move that they move into. And people on the more traditional or conservative right say, look, the Bible's pretty clear on this issue. You know, marriage is between a man and a woman, and we just can't, this is one more thing that society is, that culture is shaping in the church. And we just can't, we, can't we have to take there. a st stand at some point. Yeah. And it starts there. Yeah. But then it gets co-opted yes. by people who have to win at all costs. Yeah. I, I can deal with people who say, you know what, John, I, I'm in our own church on both sides have said, I just can't stay here at this church because either the denomination hasn't changed and I think it should be more inclusive or I feel like it's going to change and it's going to be more inclusive and, I, I, and I don't want to be a part of that. And yeah. I just don't, I just can't stand on. I've had conversations where we've had to, we've had to, people have disembarked and I want it to be with dignity and grace. Absolutely. You know? but, but, the thing, but when the power brokers get involved, <laughs> then all of a sudden it gets co-opted and, and it's, and, and that's where I think it takes a turn absolutely. that is not what Absolutely. Christ calls us to be. I don't understand why, because you and I uh, think differently about a couple of different things, this included. But there is a love between us and a trust between us that we're going to stay in the conversation because really at the end of the day, I trust that you want to be conformed to Christ. You trust that I want to be conformed to Christ. And it's not about a justice issue. It's about saying, oh, Holy Spirit, would you lead us? Now, I have some ways that I've been formed in my thoughts and in relationships that make me determine a certain way of thinking about, about, uh, about this. Mm -hmm. And so do you. But I'm open to saying, Holy Spirit, lead us. Mm -hmm. Lead us into unity, right? I'm not willing to, um, um, to, to, to kind of cut you loose as a friend and brother in Christ because of that, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I think that's one of the reasons why, especially a lot of young people, when you talk about this definition of what they want in leadership, mm -hmm. I think this is what young people are looking for in the church and they're looking yeah. for in religion and spirituality. They haven't seen it. No. You know, when you start looking at who genuinely listens, does the church genuinely listen? Are they transparent? Do they tell the truth? Even when it's something people want to hear, do they have a track record that shows genuine intent and follow through? Are they open to change their mind on new information and insights? Can they compromise on getting things done? Are they rooted in relationship? I mean, I'm reading this and it's like, this is what they want from leaders. This is what they want from organizations and institutions. Yeah. This is what they want from churches yeah. and, the, and hasn't been there. Um, and I think we're all guilty of that. This is like a civic inventory, you know, like a moral inventory right now. I think so. One of they talk about is how the only option you have when you're confronted with this polarization or this perceived polarization is uh, what's called tribalism. Yeah. You know, you, we, we are oriented around these relationships. And so we move into these tribes. And so this one guy from Utah, for example, or this woman from Utah, she said there's a lot of publicity or platforms given to people on the far ends of the extreme on any issue. And it ends up leaving people feeling like there's just one side or the other on different issues. And, and there's not much middle or common ground that either side might disagree about. <laughs> and so... This one man said, you know, tribalism is where you get in, is where you move into that, that place because you're like, well, I, I guess I have to be here. And then all of a sudden now you're in an echo chamber yeah. where you're not having conversation with anyone that's different than you. So, so Revelations has an interesting use of that word that, um, the, of tribe, right? So what, what Jesus does is he calls people from every tribe every nation to be mm. gathered. Yeah. And so the call is not to uh, be fragmented. The call is to say, um, you're in that tribe for a reason, 
right? I'm in the tribe I'm in. You're in the tribe you're for a reason. Um, the issue is when we other people from other tribes and that, that I have certain things that I've learned out of my tribe, certain great things that I love, and also there's limitations. The issue, though, is when my identity becomes so unified with that set of characteristics or those things. And, and the call of the gospel is every tribe. Every nation gets gathered around this uh, this person who's uh, who's love in flesh. The the third finding I just gonna I was gonna yeah. gloss over this one not gloss over it but it basically Go they're ahead. saying people are experiencing a profound sense of the loss of reality and control. People are dizzied, disoriented, and feeling helpless. Mm. I can relate to that. Um, <laughs> right. You know when I think about right. when I think about in my own life how. I've dealt with the chaos of the past two years I've shared before. You know, I was angry. I was carrying this deep yeah. anger about everything. And it yeah. was rooted in fear, yeah. right, or grief, but it was really fear. And once I was able to work through the fears and realize, wow, if all of these fears came true, I'd be okay. Because yeah. one of my fears is not terminal cancer, right, yeah. or yeah. my family uh, being lost. There are other fears. Yeah. And once I looked at them and go, what if every one of them came true? And on a personal note, I, I saw you do that as a person that has kind of a, a, a closer front row view to your life. And to watch you become more free in that was like liberating to me. Like I was like, oh, okay, I need to look at my fear. Like there's something about someone that you love and that you're in ministry or partnership with in some way. When you see them do deep work, mm -hmm. it's like you realize, oh, I want to do deep work. <laughs> I want to get that free. Right, and so I wonder if that's part of the call, also of the church, is for us to. And I was living kind of, in fear too. I mean, you know, yeah. you're walking on eggshells all the time. Now mm -hmm. it's like I just don't give a crap. I, I, that's kind of a joke. Yeah, I, I know. It's kind of true. And <laughs> you've a joke. been set free. Yeah, I'm like, I, this is a big deal for you. Okay, that's great. I hear you. I listen to you. I love you. And it's just, it's not. It's not. It's, not, it's, it's okay. Man, and in our community, it's like school boards and yeah, local elections yeah, yeah. and all this kind of stuff, and people yeah. are leaving their churches and all this. I'm like. You know, and, and a lot of it's mm. just rooted in misinformation. I mean, we've had it for us. People create these little pictures and send them out on the things and call us Chapel Woke and how we're creating and writing and distributing anti-white propaganda. And I'm like, who wrote? Every time it comes up, someone goes, hey, I didn't know we were doing this. Does the, does the leadership? And I was like, yeah, dude, we're not doing that. I don't know where you got this or what you're thinking about it. I said, but whoever made it, why don't you go tell them to come talk yeah, to me? Yeah. I'll sit down with the church leadership. We'll have a conversation with them. Guess how many times that's happened? Yeah. Not one time, you know? It's easier to just throw that crap out there. And so now when it bubbles back up because people, oh, have you seen this? Yeah, it came out last year or two years ago. Dude, it's don't just, it's, yeah. it's crap. It's funny when the bridges that are attempting to be built across the divides become the thing that gets demonized. That's when you realize that tribalism is so constricted around people's very nature, right? That when things that are intended to be bridges end up being um, um, like deeply, I don't know, threatening to people. You know, and I'm getting off, tra off subject now, but I mean, like in the summer of 2020 with the Ahmaud Arbery and the George Floyd, yeah. I mean, I don't mean to, I'm just gonna be honest, Chapelwood was not like, on the front line as much as we probably should have been. We, but we, we said things like racism exists. Racism is a sin. We need to listen to those and empathize with those that are different than us. You just say that. And I got people coming into my office, you know, saying I'm woke liberal being influenced by the yeah. liberal media and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, dude, I, 
I didn't say anything other than <laughs> racism exists and is a sin. I mean, I never said Black Lives Matter. Never said it one time. And they do, by the way. I, they do. <laughs> and, oh, and they do. Black Lives Crazy. do matter. What I'm saying is I've, I've never said it in the pulpit. Or, I mean, it's just like, it doesn't mean that I don't think black lives matter. I think they do I know, matter. I know that. I think, I think your life matters. I think my life matters. And the, same, the thing is, it all gets politicized and bundled into stuff that's not the real conversation. Yeah. And it kind of ticks me off. Yeah. Um, well, and, and also in this, as I think the call of what, and I don't know where all this is, the, the findings are going, but I feel more and more um, um, convicted that the church has to have a prophetic call to a new imagination of the way we are to live together, be together, and move forward together. And anything that is outside of that imagination has um, a division to it that is rooted, as you've said here before, in Diabolos, in, in, in that which is not God, Satan, in the dividing. Mm -hmm. And so those things that will divide us from one man to another, one woman to another, over ideas that we have about conceptions that will really create and exacerbate the, the anxiety and the depression and the fear is not God. Yeah. And I don't want to have any part of it. Yeah. And let me be clear, too, when I say that I never said Black Lives Matter, I'm talking about in the sense that it got co-opted. Yes. Right? And um, black lives do matter. But people can't separate the statement as my brothers and sisters in Christ. We can't have feel a empathy. Well, what happens is it immediately, <laughs> it immediately gets politicized, mm -hmm. and then I become whatever, fill in the blank. And this is part of what we're getting to, too, in this study. And this is the, the, I, this is the civic virus. Yes, this is the civic this virus. This is the civic virus. Yeah. And part of what, what they're going to see in some of these other findings is that you don't converse, you don't sit down with someone and find out that I may think this about this issue, but it doesn't lump me over there. I have other, I'm, I'm a little bit more nuanced then. Yeah. I might think one way about a certain thing. That doesn't then, oh, well, you're then raging over here, raging. No, or I'm maybe actually I'm a working it out as I live through it. I, I don't, <laughs> In do real I have time. to have like this kind of airtight ideas about every factoid that comes up? I don't know. But I'd like to have a space where. We but my default going into it is going to be, I'm going to defer to love and defer to empathy and defer yeah. to listening. Yeah. I'm not going to shut it down at the beginning. And that's what people want them to do because, again, they're interpreting what's happening through a certain lens, a certain echo yes. chamber or a certain news channel. It's just like we said, political leaders, social media and everything are using these, these, uh, these, these words and things to alienate people mm. for their own control, for their own purposes. Yeah. And it's just, it's, it's wrong yeah. uh, and it's not Christian. This fourth finding is that people's response to the threatening cross currents engulfing them is fight or flight. An act of self-protection that we all engage in as we try to preserve ourselves, our perspectives, and our identities. And so you can see if you just look around you at the world or you think about your family or you think about friends, some people that you know have chosen to fight. Mm. And some people have just pulled away. <laughs> you know, it's really helpful to me. Like I don't, I'm just, I'm done. I'm out. I, we've had church members. I have church members that are like fight. And I have other church members. I was emailing a guy recently and he's like, yeah, I'm just pulling back from a lot of this yeah. stuff. 
<laughs> well, this fight or flight, you see it happening all around you. And one, one reason they say people are in fight mode is because they want to protect themselves from feeling fear of vulnerability. Yeah. One woman from um, Oregon said, we, we're dysregulated because we're in isolation. Mm-hmm. We're not in community. We're in a virtual place in our head, but we're disembodied. And I thought, wow, that's pretty cool. She said, and, and she said, like, when I talk to my uh, teenage child, my interactions with my teenage child, I watch my teen, and there's this energy that feeds them. They have to be right. They fight. They stand up. They defend. And then broadening her lens, it's like we're almost addicted to it. It protects us from feeling vulnerable and truly connecting. Yeah. 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 Behaving badly has become the medicine. It's bad medicine. Mm-hmm. But it's yeah. become a medicine in our ability to protect ourselves from threat. You know, it's interesting to me that uh, the, a person that has helped teach me over the last probably eight years meditation and develop that practice that uh, talks about fight or flight quite a bit. And one of the things that um, this teacher has said that in between that is this opposite action called tend or befriend is that instead of fight or flight on those poles, what we have to do to regain our sense of equilibrium, balance, humanity, is tend and, def- uh, tend and befriend that. Hmm. So when Jesus says, make friends with your enemies along the way, when you realize that maybe your fear is the deepest enemy you have, not you know, your neighbor who's you know, dogs pooping in your front lawn, um, you know, that may... <laughs> I don't know why my mind went there, but there you must have the neighbor, bad neighbor. I don't know. (laughs) Well, uh, but I mean, if your if your fear is your deepest enemy, then the thing to do is, I mean, what anxiety and all those things will do is fight or flight against that. But if you have to tend and befriend it, you have to make friends with that. And I, I feel that the the antidote to this spiritual malady that we're in as a as a nation is that is to lead the nation back through their to back to themselves. One of the one of the ladies said, you know, there's this huge push in this country and this that anger is the only thing you can feel. Mm. Whether we're yelling at each, at each other, whether we're excited about our football teams, whatever. It's like boiling pot analogy. You have boiling under the surface. Heat doesn't dissipate. People don't know how to process their own issues. Mm-hmm. And then it explodes and it comes out as anger. And the, uh, all of them talked about how in the grocery store line, in the car, you don't know these people. You're disconnected. So you act and behave horribly yeah and it's like you don't care anymore you're only in this like on your own and it says like we feel like we have to fight to win and then he added even though there's 20 percent of the things that we really even disagree on he said if you really look this one guy's like if you really look at everything like 80 percent of things in life we all agree on mm-hmm. and yet it's only the small little things that we get so angry and disagree and i just think wow so that fight or flight is is a big thing and i've seen that happen in both ways whether it's anger or people just say i'm out i'm done right. uh, i'm i'm pulling out of this thing yeah the fifth one uh key finding was that many people are quick to view their fellow americans as the other using simplistic cues, preconceived notions, which are leading to even deeper feelings of isolation and instability. Yeah. This insidious fear, suspicion, mistrust of others who seem to be different. 
and uh, these alienating feelings lead people to reflexively seek out simplistic or superficial cues to make quick mm-hmm. judgments. I mentioned this. I, I see this as an example when, when you see the church dividing and one side says, well, we are the orthodox evangelical you know, biblical high view of scripture. And so if, and, and the other side is the liberalized progressive, blah, 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 blah. And I was like, demonic, you know, yeah, one right. side or yeah. the other. And that's why I was, I, you know, I wanted to ask our bishops, like, you know me, I mean, am I orthodox? Am I evangelical? Yeah. I mean, it, and yet I, the, the, we're nuanced. There's yeah. more to us than yes. that. And so yes. when we have these preconceived notions of each other, it's easy to manipulate the conversations because you can lump people in together. You can make them other and make them enemy. And then you also don't see the other. And one lady mm-hmm. said uh, that people use their differences as a way to purposefully separate themselves from one another. Mm-hmm. So we can't see the whole person. We can't see the complexity. Yeah. We just see one indicator, one signal, and I'm thinking just about, no one thinks about a, a human being that can be multifaceted yeah. and allowed to be, be able to think and believe multiple things at the same time. Yeah. Brene Brown says that it's um, hard to hate somebody close up, right? So once you you get to know them, once they um, once they have a name and a story and something that you're concerned about, um, whatever category that they're in, it's really hard to hate them. And that's what they're saying. The problem with our country is it's not ideology. It's not ideology polarization. It's that we've separated ourselves. Yeah. Yeah. That's really interesting. And community is gone. Hmm. And the next one, people trust, they ask people, what do you trust? This was fascinating. They say, people say they trust God, their faith, themselves, and those they personally know, and no one else. They ask every one of the groups, all right, who do you trust? And when they ask what organizations, group, institutions, leaders, people trust or believe, in every group, almost to, to the everyone, there was a silence dead silence for a little bit and this uncomfortable kind of looking around and at first people wouldn't name anyone there'd be a little nervous laughter then they'd simply shake their heads and like you got me stumped I mean I who do I trust they couldn't answer the question and so they almost almost like they had to have some help to like process through this word trust what is this <laughs> yeah, yeah and and so it was just interesting how they they moved through it so as they unpacked it a little bit and they said well who do you trust you know ultimately here, here's what's interesting this huge diverse group from all over the u.s in all different parts they all they would hesitate for a while somebody inevitably inevitably would say they trust god in the bible and as soon as they did in every group across the united states the other people in the group would that had hesitated for a moment perhaps wondering how others would respond to their statements but once someone broke that silence and said i believe in god i, I trust god i trust Bob, almost everyone else said yeah me, yeah, too. me too wow wow this goes back to this here again, this, this lie that somehow, you know, no, you know, the whole world hates God and doesn't believe him. They yeah. do. They're just, they're, they're, it's a little more nuanced. They're, they're in a yeah. little more nuanced yeah. place. Yeah. And they trust their spouse, their partner, their parent, their close friend, maybe a teacher or current pastor, people they intimately know. know. <laughs> I thought that was interesting because the motive of the other person in the relationship was huge when it came to trust. Mm. What is their motivation? Mm. Nobody trusts anything anymore. I mean, dude, what's stuff going on in Ukraine? And they go into these cities and they find 
these bodies and Russia's like, oh, Ukrainians did that. And I hear people saying that, like, yeah, I think the Ukrainians did that. I'm like, okay. Just because you're lying like that does not mean it's so. Well, this is I mean, you know, it's like truth. If sick. I can't see it, touch it, if I didn't see it happen, yeah. then I might not think it happened. And even when they talked about um, like data or science or things like during the pandemic, they said, well, I trust data and science, but I'd like to see it myself. I mean, I trust them. I trust the impartial scientists and, and, and medical leaders, but I'd like to see the data too. Yeah. There's this huge skepticism in, in, our, in our lives right now. Uh, the next one was, while being an American is an important part of who most people are, being a part of America is complicated and strained for many. Yeah. And I think that, you know, don't want to dive into that one a lot, but it did... Uh, you know, most everyone talked about how they're grateful to be American. They love their country, but there's some embarrassment about some of the things that we do, whether it's globally or nationally or the division, um, the way we treat one another, mm -hmm. all that sort of things. And, and what I think people are in a place right now is that whole blindly waving the flag no matter what. There's a little bit more complexity in that. Mm -hmm. And that's part of what they're saying. Yeah. No one, no, not one of them said, I'm not proud of being an American but they are looking more, um, what's the word I'm looking for? A little bit more critically. Yeah. Who we are, what we do, yeah. how we represent ourselves. Yeah. yeah. All right, number eight, across the country, a desperate search for acceptance and belonging. Boom. You talked a lot about that. This is, I told you we're gonna get to your part here. Yeah. It's the heart of what people seek, yeah. acceptance and belonging. <laughs> well, what, if, what if we actually believe that the church was a belonging system? How would we, to say, saying that, how would we begin to arrange ourselves to bear witness to that? Like from Sunday schools to, and, and what if, what if what we're, de we're dealing right now as a country is really uh, a deprivation of emotional intelligence? We have, we, we have in, a, in a neurobiological sense, we have flipped our lid. Right. Our our prefrontal cortex as a body politic has been so engaged that we have flipped our lid over anxiety and fear and division, all those things. Right. And what if the antidote was that were small batch communities that would engage in ways of helping capacities grow along emotional intelligence and belonging? Seems mm -hmm. like the church ought to be able to do that. The one thing that stuck out to me in this section was they, they, they wrote the desire for acceptance and validation for some semblance of community was a constant and consistent theme in all of our conversation groups. People will go to great lengths to find it. How does the church become a place where community can be regained and people can feel as if they belong? But it has to be a healthy space and they have to feel as if they are welcome. Yeah. And that's the hard part is not, churches are not always good at that. Number nine, empathy, productive talk. Compromise yeah. are prerequisites for moving society forward. But who will feel safe enough to move forward and step into that world? And part of what they talked about is how it's really hard to take a risk and go have conversations because you get attacked. There was a guy who's a journalist in a church talking about his church membership and how some of his reporting in journalism in the local area, that he got so many horrible letters and emails and, and stuff on social media. And a lot of them were from fellow church members. And he's like, I, I can't, I can't stay in this church. Yeah. 
Um, yeah. And it was all about, okay, yeah. man, we can't have any productive yeah. conversation, empathy, or compromise. Mm-hmm. And that what they're saying is all the people said, you got to have that if we're going to move forward, mm-hmm. but will we be willing to do it? Are we going to be willing to take the risk to step into that? Uh, one person said, there's such shallowness about us, right? I mean, that's the thing also that does, it doesn't lead to compromise because we don't want to look deeper. We don't want to know each mm-hmm. other. We don't see each other's humanity. And so we can't exercise greater empathy toward one another. Mm-hmm. Man, I mean, we see that too. I think the hum- he's seeing each other's humanity and empathy. The last one is that people believe fundamentally the change is going to happen in the local community. (laughs) It's not going to come from government. It's not going to come from Washington. It's none of that. It's going to happen in the community where you live, the people that you do community with. And they saw a lot of echoes of that or a lot of clues during the pandemic. I think about like the food pantry, all these things that people came together, people not even from our church that I want to come out here and help do this. Mm -hmm. And even the people that were receiving the food were coming and volunteering uh, in the place. And it really connected the community. So as we wind this down, um, one of the things that people said, there's two fundamental things that I thought were really interesting here. First, of their group work, people said, I was so surprised. Mm how my group was able to have a productive conversation given that we were all over the place in different things about the state of our lives in the country. And there was this deep sense of gratitude that we were able to have this conversation with each other. Mm. That was number one in every group. Mm. And here was the second thing I thought was fascinating. That in every group, all 16 of them around the U.S., there were always people in each group who invariably expressed with confidence that this discussion that we just had had to be different from all the other discussions that you're having out there. Because this just doesn't happen. This is so unique. What happened This here? is so yeah, right. amazing that we were able to share and talk. Mm-hmm. They were convinced that they and their fellow community members had somehow done something that no one else was able to do. So you, In every group, they said that. Yeah. And the researchers are like, wow, this is interesting. They think they're the only ones that can do it. And they're all doing it. Yeah. But their ex- expectation, their belief, control belief is, no one can do this. Mm-hmm. This is my fundamental like argument that I am lifting up all the time is that it's not as bad (laughs) as it sounds. Yes. And And if you get yourself locally in your community more connected to the people in your community, in your church, in your in your neighborhood and all this kind of stuff, you're going to find out that all the stuff you hear on the news and the social media and the political leaders and the denominational people that are trying to spend, you're going to hear that it's it's not where people are. That's right. I have said this before that I believe the vast majority of United Methodists are compatibilists and they are traditional in their interpretation of the Bible. And many of them believe marriage is supposed to be between a man and a woman, but they're going to say, I don't feel like I have to leave tomorrow if another church or another pastor decides or thinks different than me. And on the progressive yes. side, the same thing. And they say, yes. I believe that everyone should be included. I believe no one should be out, you know, whatever. I read the Bible too. And they look at the other side and go, but I'm willing to be in a church with people who are not there or don't read it the same way I do. And I'm just telling you, I believe fundamentally that that's where the vast majority of people in the United Methodist he, Church are. Here's the deal. You are in churches all over the nation where that's the case. Look, I it's serve just... churches in <laughs> South Georgia and... Texas, yeah. the two most 
known conservative conferences in the United Methodist Church. And I'm just telling you, all right, I know the voices, I know the people, I know the churches, and I'm telling you the vast majority of them that I've ever experienced are people who say, I'm not there yet, I don't condone it, I don't understand it, but I don't need to leave over this. This is not worth splitting the church over. People say, I'm wrong, I don't have my, <laughs> I'm like, okay, that's fine, we'll see. You know, it's not gonna, we're, we're gonna get there. I mean, it, it's not much longer before we're gonna figure out, right, whether I'm just, you know, delusional, mm-hmm. or if maybe my experience has been, you know. There's a lot more to lose if we split, in any split, if we split politically, if we split, you know, in terms of our civic discussions, if we split as a denial. We, Dietrich Bonhoeffer says that the only sin is walking away from the table. That's what he says. That's what he says um, that sin is, is because community is where Christ is. That's the sanctity. That's the that's the common union is where Christ is. And so and that common union can hold a lot of tension. Hmm. Yeah. Right. I I just think back in in 2019, I was in a dialogue with uh, Bishop John Yambasu from Africa. Mm. And uh, he was one of the ones that was pulling people together to for a compromise, mm-hmm. you know, the protocol and amicable split. And he, in one of the emails he sent me, and he gave me permission to share it. He said, look, John, he goes, African, Africans are going to stay in the United Methodist Church. And we will be traditional in our understanding of sexuality. Yeah. He goes, in America, people who are centrist or moderates or progressives, they will stay in the United Methodist Church. He goes, and there will be a lot of traditionalists, people who have a traditional understanding of sexuality, marriage, that will remain in the United Methodist Church. Yes. The guy was a prophet on a lot of things. He was tragically killed in a car accident. Oh. Um, oh. Yeah, and, and so he's not around anymore oh. to provide his leadership. But I'm just telling you, you know, when you hear people like that who, and, and he, he never had that tonal quality of anger. And that's the one thing I think that really turns me off on the right or the left is when people get you know so fired up and the tone becomes angry or superior i always hate that kind of it's well, just angry yeah it's just it's like yeah what right. well, how do how how do we treat why do we treat each other that way especially in the church but so it's a fascinating story and i think i mean the um the whole idea of a civic virus it resonates with me because I've, I've felt all this stuff they're talking about, like you and I've talked about this a lot over the past couple of years. <laughs> this is where I felt like we are as a society. Yeah. And I thought maybe it was more about the politics, but that's one, that's one. It's really helpful. Just one symptom. Yeah, right. Of the greater issue that I think now, but now what it gives me hope to say, we can do something about this yeah, yeah. because the fundamental problem is people feeling like they are disconnected, they don't belong, and yes. there's no community. Yes. I'm like, we can do something about that. Yeah, absolutely. I can't fix the other stuff, no. but we can do something about that. Locally. Yeah. Locally. And, it's, and it starts local. That was the first recommendation. There are a whole, you have to go and check it out. We'll have to put somewhere in the thing where the link to the report is if you want to go online and see it. Uh, but if you look for the Harvard, uh, it was at the Harvard. Um, Institute. Yeah, it'll be in the show notes. In the show notes. In the show notes. I almost, I almost yeah. w- wish that we could change our tagline or at least expand it in this season. And maybe the, always the second part of the tagline is changeable depending on the season. But Chapwood is a community of grace, and it should also be a community of belonging, right? So a community of grace and belonging. 
um, because we cannot give that up. This is what, when you talk about listening to what people outside the church are saying, the language they're using, and what they want to see, that's the language they're using. And so I'm like, why wouldn't we say that's... Because we want to be that place for them. Mm-hmm. So let's figure out what the language is. Let's adapt our language. Right. Our language is too stuffy and churchy anyway. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, pews, narthexes, sacristies. We ought to have a trivia game. Do you know what this is? And my, we did it with the kids one time. We did. Do you know what this is? No idea. Uh, no. No. <laughs> well, this has been fun, and, uh, and we've solved all the world's problems in just, what, like an hour and... How long was this, Jeff? As long was it? An hour and four minutes. Hour four. <laughs> Done. It felt short, though. It did. Well, good. Well, did. I'm John Stevens. And I'm Matt Russell. And this is Pod Have Mercy. Hello, neighbor. How are you? Really want to shower you with love. Hello, neighbor, how are you? Really wanna challenge you?